Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're, of course, going to have another informative and incredible episode for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoy. There's a couple different topics we're going to jump back and forth between, um, but we're going to cover all we can to give you the most incredible experience possible. So first, we're going to start off with Europe, and we're actually going to return to France to have a you know, bigger picture view of what happened in France with the riots and some of the interpretations of the riots. So the obvious cause for the riots is mass immigration, is that there are all these people from all over the world who are now in France. Well, not really all over the world, primarily from Africa, both North and Sub-Saharan Africa. And these are the people who caused the riots. You know, they were even saying like, oh, well, only 10% of them are immigrants. But then pretty much the vast majority of the other ones are from an immigrant background of that they're first or, or second or third generation immigrant and they've never assimilated and you could even see this from the clips is that these are all brown and black people these are not white working class french rising up against for anything and the whole cause of it was saying that like racist police in france are brutalizing non-whites and it's now time for them to rise up and attack this system so they're very clear it's very obvious what this was over it was over a police shooting of a teenage uh, North African who, with a long criminal record, it was the, you know, ethnic neighborhoods rising up. The Bonlus, I think you add, I think the S is pronounced, but Bonlu is just uh, singular, but I think Bonlus is with, I think you do pronounce the French. I, French pronunciation is uh, is a nightmare for me. So this anytime you hear, it's like last week I said Marseille, it's Marseille. Uh, so uh, we've, we're, have, we're learning some great things about the French language on this. It's a very American podcast, and we won't apologize for being an American. We should just call these whatever. It's like the Ban Louis. You know, we'll call it the Ban Louis. This, let, let's, let's use American pronunciations. But anyway, the Ban Louis, they're rising up. It's from those neighborhoods. They're attacking the system. They're attacking the expressions of what they think is the French order. And by French order, they mean the white order, white uh power structure of the society and that's what really what it was it was a it was a racial revolt but for some reason uh anglophone post-liberals and for those who might not know who the post-liberals are you know i've talked about them a lot this is a new trend of people who want to pretend that they're left-wing economically right-wing socially conservative and really most of what it comes down to and we've had some podcasts about this is that it's just people who are reviving, you know, 80s era labor party policies, you know, social democracy. And then they're just like, oh, we're pro-life. And there's some like vague religious veneer about it. It's like, oh, well, we want the Catholic Church to have a greater role. And then you look at the actual policies and they're no different from like the 1980s platform of the labor party or any other type of European social democratic party. So it's not that radical at all. The only different, the only kind of conservative stuff in there is like some support for prayer and, uh, and religious schools. And of course, they're pro-life. Uh, so it's not that. But it, it's really more an exercise in contrarianism. And unlike with other radical stuff, you know, which maybe gets a little too contrarian, you know, it's highlighted in the New York Times and the major media posts, the media outlets. And all these guys seen the French riots, and now you've seen a lot of these publications, you know, Compact Magazine, which was run by Sorab Amari, 
unheard. You know, they really exist on trying to aggravate like right wing Twitter and to be contrarian against them and write these like very snide articles. And they've sure enough did that with the French riots. They see everyone, you know, commenting, oh, this is what happens with mass immigration. This is the fruits of diversity and multiculturalism. And, you know, even some of the rioters were saying about that. They're like, you know, screw the whites, screw the French. You know, we're not French. And they're like, huh, this is not, this is, this has nothing, this isn't about immigration, this isn't about demographics, this is about bread prices. This is a multi, this is a revolt of the multiracial working class against cost of living expenses. And that's just so asinine for people to believe this shit. And it was like very popular and people like, oh, you guys just don't know French, check out this graph. It's like, look. You know, bread prices were not the cause of this. And second, there were no native French involved. Well, very few native French involved. I mean, there were Antifa types there, but they the the work the native French working class was not involved in riots at all. It was primarily the new ethnic minorities. It was the ethnic minorities along with some help from Antifa. None of these people were motivated by bread prices or cost of living prices. They were reacting against a system they feel that they're not part of, that they can't assimilate to, and they hate, and they view it as white, and they themselves as non-white, and that's what they're reacting to. That's what they're rejecting. It had nothing to do with food costs, nothing to do with food prices. This wasn't, you know, uh, 40-something mothers with, like, several children who are mad about pre- uh, bread prices. These were young men who, you know, probably find a way to feed themselves anyway, and they're you know, mad about uh, they're really revolting against white civilization in France. This is the this is the real meaning of the riots. This is the real meaning of the disturbances. To argue otherwise is just to deny reality or what's before you and to ex- do an exercise in contrarianism. And really the whole point of this is just to be smug towards right-wing tutors. Like, oh, these guys are idiots. Because one of the person who wrote this was Malcolm Keone, who exists primarily to try to figure out new ways to dunk on right-wing Twitter users. And people are like, oh, he's just so smart. It's a half half African, half Swedish guy. He's just so smart. And he's a former communist, or he's still a communist, actually. And he just really gets this stuff. And, you know, it's it, it's just denying reality when you see it. And it's so stupid that this has became an idea that people entertained. It's because, you know, there's there's this desire to see everything as like there's this working class throughout the West that's ready to rise up and revolt over economic reasons when that's not really the case here. You know, it'd have been like claiming the Black Lives Matter riots were over, you know, food prices. That's how stupid this is. They clearly had a reason. You know, the reason was stated. The violence was being committed by a certain group of people. They And then asked why they're doing this is like they hate the French society. They don't, you know, it's due to assimilation and, you know, cultural problems. It has nothing to do with economics. Now, there could be some things, like some of these people may have been angry about some, you know, economic issues, but the stated purpose behind it, the unifying purpose behind it, and the catalyst for this was over racial issues. And it's the same with Black Lives Matter. You know, I think a lot of the riots got so bad in America is because people have been cooped up by COVID. And this gave them an outlet to vent their rage over it. And they directed it towards a racial matter. Now, some of that 
other reasons may have been, you know, an underlying motivation or an unstated motivation, but you have to take what the stated motivation is and the primary purpose behind it. Because these people weren't rioting over COVID lockdowns. They were rioting over George Floyd. They were rioting over systemic racism or what have you. That's what the stated reason was it for. And it's the same here with the French riots. If you had said that that was the BLM riots were over economics that was stupid and even it's like saying like january 6th was over economic anxiety which so Amari wrote that article for new york times like these people were reacting over how you know DoorDash drivers weren't unionized and it's like the majority of the january sixers were middle class so they were not reacting over that and that's just as idiotic to say january 6th was over economic anxiety to, to say that the French riots were over economic issues. They, they had a stated purpose. There was an underlying catalyst. It, was not, it wasn't like, oh, the store ran out of bread or the bread was too expensive and then people like protested and then it spiraled into a riot. And there were tons of native-born French working class who were probably bearing the most of the brunt of those, econo- of those high food prices. You know, they weren't joining in. So it's just wanting to see something that's not there and to deny reality. And most French aren't following along with this. Like the vast majority of French connect this to immigration. It's well, it's over 70%, depending on the poll. Some polls I've seen, it's almost 80% see the connection between the riots and immigration. The only people denying it are ang- Anglophone, post-liberals, and Macron. Macron is like, oh, there's no immigration thing here. It's like, oh, there's tons of native French who were arrested with names like Matteo or whatever. Uh, you know, they're those people, Pierre, they, you know, those were the people arrested. And that's it. I mean, moving along to the last thing on the French thing is uh, how poorly Macron handled this situation. I talked about this a little bit last week, but I really want to emphasize this. There are still a couple of right wingers, not many, uh, none of them from the continent, none of them French speaking, and none of them living in France who really see Macron as a uh, imperial figure as a Caesar type, which is very strange because pretty much everyone who's on the continent of Europe hates Macron. They see him as one of the worst, as one of their, you know, villains, and they do not see him as a good guy. You know, you can see this even with some right wingers who are like, base Biden, Biden's awesome. It's probably even more ridiculous for Macron because Macron, you know, he does some interesting stuff when it comes to Islam, but at the same time, he's increasing immigration. He his solution to the riots was just giving more money to these areas, not trying to restrict immigration. You know, the support for immigration immigration restriction in France over the riots is now like over seventy percent. It's a lot of the seventy percent net numbers. But Macron is like, oh no, we'll just give them more money. This has nothing to do with race. This has nothing to do with immigration. This is what it's about. And he had a he had a weak response to the riots. He initially came out and condemned the police officer. He's still condemning the police officer. And it's just like this guy does is not that great, you know, white knight for Europe. You know, a lot of people see him as somebody who can unite European Union to create an independent block of Amer- away from American power and to have decent relations with Russia or what have you. And that's not what he's about, you know. He ultimately follows the globalist American empire line. You know, he does say some some things about China. You know, he's like, we're not vassals to America. But by his actions, he is. I mean, you know, he may grumble a little bit about the Ukraine situation, but he's fully committed to it. You know, he 
He's not really actively working for peace. He's not disputing the American-led line on, on Ukraine and Russia. And, it, you know, opening up business opportunities to China to allow China to have more control of the continent and, you know, while isolating Russia from the continent is not really what the right wing wants to do. And, I, you know, the left-wing government in Germany, which no one talks about how based Olaf Scholz is, they do a lot of similar things with China. They're more anti-hostile uh, to, to Russia, probably because they're more under the thumb of America. But, you know, that, that's not really things to see them as doing anything good. So, I don't. Macron is just... He has a little bit more interesting personality than some of the other European leaders. And he's also head of the second most powerful state in Europe or second most important state in Europe. But at the same time, he's, you know, he's a standard liberal. And even his opposition to Islam stuff and, you know, trying to curb Islam, Islamization and radical Islam, that doesn't come with any type of guarantees for immigration restriction. And at the end of the day, he's, you know, this is his opportunity to differentiate himself from all the liberals. This is his time to say, this is an immigrant problem. We're going to crack down on crime. We're going to crack down on disorder. We're going to crack, we're going to lower immigration because we cannot have a society like this. And he didn't do that. He did the opposite of what he should have done. He just did, oh, more money for you guys. This has nothing to do with immigration. Uh, we all just need to come together. And even his government is trying to censor and arrest people who were criticizing the riots too much. And so, and even his government previously to that, it would like some of these right wingers who may be into that, you know, he, they've been arresting uh, COVID skeptics. They've been arresting people involved in hate speech uh, for many, many years. I mean, that's not that's not uh, unique to Macron. That's just the way of the French government and French laws for many years. So it's like you can't really see this as a Jupiterian figure as he wants to make it out to be. He occasionally makes some interesting comments. He occasionally differentiates himself from liberals. But this was a, you know, this was a time to shine. This is a time to demonstrate who he really is. And he showed the world who he really is. And he's not this Napoleon in the making. He's just another liberal technocrat. Now on to other European leaders. They're, Macron, I don't think it's a disappointment because most people thought he was bad from the beginning and just some a few people have rationalized him into being uh, based or what have you um, for that. I've been saying what have you a lot this podcast. <laughs> I need to stop saying it. But they have that mentality. He's not been a disappointment. But uh, Maloney, Georgia Maloney in Italy has been a massive disappointment. It was announced last week that she, late last week, that Italy is now going to offer over 400,000 uh, visas to immigrants outside of the EU to come and work in Italy. And outside of the EU means they're going to be non-white. This is not bringing in Eastern Europeans or, you know, what other type of group this is bringing in non-whites from outside the EU. And this may be one of the worst things I've seen. And a lot of governments have been starting to do this. Poland, I, this is controversial because if you ever criticize Poland, there's like a Polish defense league on, on Twitter that comes out. And Poland announced that they were going to do a similar thing, offering 400,000 visas to workers outside of the EU to come to Poland. And they've already been having this too. There's been a lot of non-EU migrant laborers who live in Poland. I think I saw some number that there may be 2 million living in Poland. 
And so that's a big deal because like everyone, you know, for several years, people have been like base Poland. Their conservative government's always been restrict or fighting against immigration and, you know, opposing that and wanting no immigration. And then to see them inviting 400,000 immigrants from outside of Europe to their country, that's uh, pretty much a betrayal. But as several people were saying, oh, well, they pulled back from that proposal. And the big reason they pulled back from that proposal is because they don't want the far right or Nationalist Party, Confederacy, Confederation. I'm not quite sure. Both of those are used for their English name to gain more votes at their expense. So they pull back and they're like, oh, we're not going to do this. They have an upcoming competitive election there, and it's proposing a massive immigration increase is certainly not a way to win that election. So they've been, so they withdrew it. And people are like, oh, okay, so base Poland's still on there. And it's like, this is still the government proposing that. And they could easily go back on that promise once, like they, once after the election. Really, the only leader still staying strong against this is Orban. But Orban is, you know, Hungary is not as important of a country as Italy. It's not even as important of a country as Poland. But, you know, they're more in the same league. And he is standing firm against immigration. There's no increases. You know, there's no, you know, secret like we're importing migrant laborers from outside of Europe. He's really the only one standing strong against this. And he's also leading the fight in the EU over these migrant quotas where every country would have to take in a certain number of migrants, divvying up the share of migrants, and then if they don't, they get hit with a penalty. And, you know, Poland and Hungary are both opposing it, and I believe Italy as well, but at the same time, you know, Italy is wanting their own guest workers to come in to you. Most of the migrant quotas are about these people who keep coming from you know, they're illegal migrants or sometimes they're called refugees or asylum seekers. And they're coming either from uh, through the Balkans, from Turkey, through the Balkans, or they're coming by boat, primarily coming by boat from North Africa. And, you know, they don't know what to do with them. So they would just want to divvy them up and share them around the rest of Europe. And obviously a lot of people don't want that, but they're trying to force them to do this. So it's nice that some of the, these countries are doing it. It's primarily Poland and Hungary. Italy is making some remarks about how the EU should focus more on stopping illegal immigration. But it's not as firmly in opposition as Poland and Hungary. Poland and Hungary are, prim- are the primary opponents. But Italy, you know, is on the is on the fence, so to speak. Now, Maloney has been a massive disappointment. I think people were very excited that, oh, wow, we have a nationalist government taking over one of these serious Western European countries. You know, it's not as big of a deal as France or Germany, but it's close. Like Italy is a more important country than Poland and Hungary and Europe. You know, it's a stronger economy. It's more in entwined with Western Europe. You know, it's it's where a lot of these migrants are first coming to from the from North Africa. So it's very it was very important that this nationalist government took place. But she has not lived up to that promise. She, you know, they're not doing as much on these migrant boats as they could. They're doing a little bit more than the previous government. They're, they're also letting a lot in that they shouldn't have been. And they're getting criticized by other nationalists for this. You know, she seems more focused on Ukraine. She's a huge hawk on Ukraine. And there's a lot of other matters. And she seems to be trying to do her most to please America, even though when she was elected or when her party or coalition came to power, you know, Biden claimed that this is a threat to democracy. It was indicating he may even support like toppling it. But she's now doing all she can to try to please Biden and America. 
while not doing as much as she should on immigration and going against what she was elected to do on immigration by bringing in over 400,000 of these migrants. Now, this isn't to say that all nationalists are like this. I mean, you could point to Orban, who is solid on this issue. You know, the Law and Justice Party in, in Poland has been much better, but not as good as it could have been. And really what it comes to down to Italy is that the person who should have been in charge is Salvini and Lega rather than the Brothers of Italy of um, Maloney's party. Because Maloney's party is more center-right or more traditionally conservative, while Lega is a more nationalist party. And Lega would have been more you know, focused on stopping immigration, and they're not Ukraine hawks. Lega has a more sympathetic position to Russia than the Brothers of Italy. Brothers of Italy is like extremely pro-NATO, pro-GAE, and that's what they desire. And I think it is a real key question in Europe. I don't think that this is as important in America because, one, I don't think there is any popular groundswell for support for Russia. It also makes no sense for America to... Um, be pro-Russia at this. Well, I could say, you know, I want to take that back because I want to say it doesn't make as much sense to be anti-Russia, but the issue just doesn't connect with Americans. We have not really dependent on Russia. We don't really need Russia for our own economic interests. That, but I think it's we shouldn't be, you know, trying to provoke Russia or getting into hostilities with Russia, and we should work for a peace deal in Ukraine rather than trying to destroy Eastern Europe. Through that, uh, through that war, but at the same time, Russia is just not important to what we're doing in America, and the majority of people, you know, offline people, which that's the majority of Americans, are very hostile towards Russia. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really play up to our political strengths to be very overtly pro-Russia. I just think you just, you know, it's like another issue. It's for Europe to figure out. It's not our issue. It's not our fight. That's my main thing. You don't need to turn yourselves into Russia cheerleaders or Russia shills, which is a, what a lot of right-wingers have done in America. But in Europe, I think it's a little bit different situation because now I think a good litmus test for Europeans and whether you can trust them is whether they're Ukraine hawks or not. Salvini is not a Ukraine hawk. Salvini is wanted to, you know, we need to resolve this for peace and to do more with Putin. He's changed his tune a little bit over the war because there's a lot of, you know, there was a lot of popular outrage over the war and towards Putin over the matter, but he's much more reasonable and level-headed, and he's not a Ukraine hawk, at least compared to Maloney. And Poland is really, you know, is the most hawkish on Ukraine. You know, they want us to send tons of weapons there. You know, even Poles want to intervene in Ukraine. You know, they are, pro out of all the states, they may be the most hawkish on Ukraine. Yet they do have this government that's on immigration. And I think when you have, in, a, in Europe, when you have the choices of having, wanting to move away from America and be more independent, and that also means having better relations with Russia and working more with Russia, that's probably a much better stance for nationalists than those who are extremely pro-NATO, pro-America, because I think those who are pro-NATO, pro-America are more willing to betray and to sell out on the on the identity issues because Orban Orban of all the EU powers is the most independent on Ukraine. It's the least hawkish on Ukraine. You know, it's still calling for better relations with Russia. It's still calling for peace 
in the conflict, and that's made them hated by the rest of Eastern Europe, even though you know Poland and uh, is working with them against this EU migrant proposal. You know, Poland and the other states have all con- in Eastern Europe have all been condemning them. The V4, they effectively kicked out Hungary from the V4 because of their stance on Ukraine. Yet, once again, Orban is the one holding the line on immigration and identity issues compared to Poland. Even though Poland did backtrack, it's still very concerning that they propose this anyway, and they may only just be pulling it back because of electoral matters or electoral concerns. And then Maloney, who is just a complete disappointment, uh, even much more so than the Law and Justice Party. At least the Law and Justice Party did restrict immigration and, and fight back against the EU trying to impose immigrants on them. Well, like Maloney is not really even doing that. I mean, she's doing more to, you know, to try to stop the boats coming in, but that's not even being that effective. So she's failing to do what was her main promise to do while being extremely hawkish on Ukraine. So that's why I think if you want to have a true nationalist, you really have to have somebody who's a party that's wanting to be more independent of America, American control. And that's a better sign that you can rely on them and trust them. AFD in Germany is, you know, one of the reasons why they're so popular is because they're the only party that's not insane about Ukraine. They're like, look, this war is destroying our economy. We we de- we need Russia for our energy supplies. We're, we need to be rational here. And the other parties are just like so driven by insanity. They're like, no, we're going to destroy our energy supply. We're going to be hostile towards Russia. And we're going to be even more dependent on America. And AFD is like, uh, this is terrible for Germany. Let's put Germany first. And I think they're the party being the one and only reasonable party on immigration, on foreign policy, and on energy matters is driving up their popularity because a lot of polls are now showing them with 20% support, which is a huge deal that a far-right nationalist party in the post-war environment is now getting so much support. And that's why there's all these worries and fears over AFD. Because you know if nationalists took power in Germany... That would be a red alert for America. That would be, America would be very upset about that if that happened. That would be a world shaking, uh, a world historical event if that happened. That would be a huge W white pill if that happened. I don't think we're there yet or, you know, maybe in 10 years, uh, you know, maybe sometime in the 2030s that could happen and that would be a big deal. The more likely scenario is that nationals take power in France, which would be almost as big of a W as and as almost a great of event as Germany. And maybe that might push Germany in the right direction as well. But that's just something you have to, that's just something to consider. But for all these countries, you know, if, and this even goes into France, you know, the nationalists there, both Le Pen and Zemmour, are both more, you know, wanting to move away from American dependence and have a much more sympathetic attitude or diplomatic attitude towards Russia than even Macron. And Macron has a more diplomatic attitude towards Russia than a lot of these European leaders, especially compared to Eastern Europe and compared to Maloney. He's probably more willing to seek peace in Ukraine and try to push for peace in Ukraine than Maloney is. But still, compared to the nationalists, he is still on the NATO uh, NATO plantation. It's even worse in Eastern Europe. You know, these countries in Eastern Europe are very nationalist. Lots of nationalists are in charge. And even these guys have like very bad optics nationalism uh, in the Baltics and in Ukraine. 
I don't want to really, because there's like a long historical animosity between them and Russia, and they actually do have legitimate grievances against Russia. So, and that's always been my position. It's like, you know, on the border, they they can have whatever they want to believe. I'm not going to judge that. But at the same time, it should be noted what comes with being the most undying loyal people to the globalist American empire. And these states, you know, I think it was in Lithuania, which they then passed these dramatic LGBT laws in a lot of ways to please America and to ensure that they have more defense supplies. I forget if it was, uh, it could have been Estonia. It was one of the three Baltic states. And they, but at the same time, they're allowing like bad optics nationalists into their coalition and all this stuff. Um, and there was even a one state in the Baltic. I get them all th- three confused. I think this might have been in Estonia where they were supposed to have a nationalist party take power. But then there were some uh, shenanigans, <laughs> probably American-induced shenanigans. And they ensured that the uh, standard government stayed in power. You know, these are full-on satrapies of, of the globalist American empire. And I don't know if that's really what Europe wants. But at the same time, for the Baltics and Ukraine... Uh, well, the Ukraine outside of eastern Ukraine are where they actually like Russia. But for the majority of Ukraine, you know, they really have an experience of being under Russia and they really don't like it. And so they will choose a globalist American empire just because of their that's, you know, that's the devil they know. And in ways that's different from the common phrases that the devil they know is worse than the devil they don't know in their mind. And they prefer the devil they don't know. And they see like there's greater prosperity, there's greater defense, and their main enemy is is Russia. I was almost about to say Germany, but <laughs> it's Russia, and so that's something to keep them uh, to see there. But it even gets worse with like states like Poland, which you know I don't think they have to worry about Russia coming in and dominating their country anymore. But they're like rabid, you know, Russia phobes. I even don't think that's. I can even see the same with. Finland, that Finland doesn't really have to worry about that and their rabid Russia foes. Now, Finland is one of the few countries in Europe that's trying to restrict immigration thanks to nationalists joining the government. But then there's always this worry that you have to worry that you have to worry that you have to worry. There's this concern that you have to have that this government could at any moment's notice just change their tune because they're so dependent on America. America would be like, oh, well, you know, you say you want to restrict immigration, but we don't like that. If you can't want defense supplies and you want to stay in good standing in NATO, you know, you may want to change that attitude. And so that's always what comes with this is that dependence on America, you really can't. It's not an either or with Russia or America, but Europe really needs to have more independence from America. And that would probably require better relations with Russia, but not like in the same subservient role they have with America that they would maintain with Russia as well. Hey, but they need to gain that independence because otherwise they're not able to protect their continent, protect their borders from invasion and to maintain their identity and maintain who they are. It's impossible to do that with American control or at least as America as it exists now and operates in the world right now. And unless there's some dramatic change in a, the global American empire, this is going to be the fate of Europe. It's, you know, they're always going to be pushed to have more immigration to you know, embrace L- these radical social liberal laws. I mean, and well, in a lot of Western Europe, they already maybe have more radical social liberal laws than us, arguably. But it's it's the case in Eastern Europe where they're more socially conservative. They'll have to push for you know things to make us happy and to ensure that they have drag queen story hour and other ma- matters in order to please the American State Department.
So I think that's now a good litmus test is whether for nationalists and right-wing parties is what is their stance on Ukraine and what is their stance on Russia. And if they have a reasonable attitude towards it, if they're not hawkish on Ukraine, if they want a peace deal and they admit that Europe needs to have decent relations with Russia, they're a nationalist party in Europe you can trust. If they're massive hawks on Ukraine and Russia, like the Sweden Democrats, you know, Maloney and others, you do need a degree of skepticism with them. Now, it's good that they get in the government. Like, I do think the Swedish Democrats and the true Finns are, they're now just the Finns in Finland and a couple of these other parties, you know, they're still good. It's still a positive development, but you do have to have skepticism that they're going to fully deliver because ultimately they are pawns or they want to be pawns of the global American empire. And that could make them change their immigration attitude and this, obsession with standing athwart or standing against Russia. And you can already see that happening in the Baltic states and Poland. Now moving away from Europe to the Anglosphere, and it's the Indians wanting their land back. And this is prompted, this discussion is prompted by Ben and Jerry's issuing a ridiculous press statement on July 4th, saying that it's time to, our America is on stolen land and it's time to return that land to the Indians. Is particularly hiding, lighting Mount Rushmore and saying how it's so bad that Mount Rushmore is on stolen land and this belongs to Indian tribes, even though they, the specific Indian tribes had stolen that land as well or conquered that land from somebody else. America has to give them back to them. And then it criticized the four great Americans on Mount Rushmore as evil white colonizers who oppressed the indigenous. So this is a bizarre statement from an ice cream company, obviously, to make. But it is, unfortunately, not an uncommon view in America right now that we are living on stolen land. City councils throughout this country now begin or have issued land acknowledgments saying that they're on stolen land and uh, how bad that is. And so do schools and universities issue this as well. And even some sports teams have done it. It's a bigger deal in Canada, but we'll get to Canada in the moment. You know, it's taught in our schools and universities that we're not only outside the land acknowledgments that we live on stolen land. And so a lot of Indians are now demanding reparations of, of some sort for their past crimes and saying about like how awful America is. And it's very bizarre for a country that, you know, we would not be America if we had not uh, conquered this land and defeated the Indians. And but now we have to apologize for that, which is very weird because one, Indians were fighting and stealing each other's land for many, many years before we even arrived. And they were still doing this when we arrived. And many of these Indians are like, well, this has been in our land for thousands of years. No, they had just recently arrived before they came in contact with the white man. And now since they lost those battles, they want to claim that that's their land, but that's not how this works. That's not how human history works to give their land back or to feel apologetic for conquering the land. Cause America would not be a great country if we had not ta taken this land and this land was this there. That's the way of human nature and human history is that people come and conquer and some people lose, some people win. And that's just the nature of the things. And the Indians were well aware of this due to their own uh, life and all their own interactions between the tribes before the white man was here and during the, the white man's arrival. 
But now this is popular to talk about. And so how much of a threat do we have to worry about in America with this? So far, compared to, you know, Canada and Australia, we are not really there yet with full on, like, you know, groveling to the Indians and giving them like tons of reparations and lots of land that shouldn't be theirs outside of the Oklahoma uh, a decision in Oklahoma that was issued by Judge Gorsuch. And 2020, he issued saying he, he effectively ruled that 43% of Oklahoma is now Indian territory. And it totally messed up how they handle jurisdiction in Oklahoma because it's like, well, who's enforcing the law now? Who's enforcing these property you know, rights and these property um, measures now that like 43% of it is Indian territory? And Gorsuch didn't care. He's like, oh, the treaties of the 19th century guarantee this. And uh, that's not really how it is, but you know, Gorsuch felt that like you know the stolen land mantra is now very important to him, and he's really been pushing that. So that's been the most biggest example of land back in America, but it could get very worse because we just need to look to our northern neighbor in Canada and to Australia, which in Canada they are, you know, they're they're giving billions of dollars away in reparations over this. Uh, these residential school hoaxes where they're claiming what there was like all these deaths and abuses and most of it is fake and a lot of it is based on exaggeration and hyperbole and is not as rooted in fact as you may imagine but they're actually going to they may consider criminalizing uh, skepticism of it there's been uh, talks of criminalizing it even though it's not as based in truth as their believers believe it is that's just one thing they're also looking to give a lot of land back to the native, the so-called natives. Um, much more, and that's more advanced than in America because their parliament is actually looking into this. They're also thinking about changing their national anthem to reflect that it's on native land. They're thinking about even eliminating their national holiday. Or a lot of cities don't celebrate their their equivalent to Independence Day. They've essentially cast aside their founding father, John A. McDonald, as removing a lot of public honors for him and monuments because they think he was a racist who stole land from the Indians. So they're really replacing themselves in any type of historic identity they had to just be one of guilt over what they did to Indians. And it's getting worse in Australia with the Aborigines, with the people in the Aborigines, is that they're changing a lot of place names to that have Anglo names to or honoring the settlers to that of the Aborigines. They're thinking about canceling their national Independence Day or their Settlement Day. Uh, it's Australia Day there because celebrates the arrival of European settlers and for Australians now that's nothing to celebrate even though Australia would not be a country without those European settlers so it's very much these uh, these uh, I guess worship of the indigenous comes at the expense of people having any pride in who they are and pride in being a nation is that they're not even supposed to be a nations is that the fact they are nations is a terrible thing is that they should have just let the Indians and Aborigines just uh, do their own thing and maybe they would have been great of some sort or but that's just how the mentality is and Australia is going a step further because there's this big vote over granting something called an indigenous voice to parliament and this would give them you know it's a little unclear what may be the parameters of it because 
it's supposed to be an advisory body within the parliament that you know has a say in what's going on and there's worries that you know everything would have to be approved by this advisory body for things to carry on it wouldn't be democratic because it only represent a small part of the population and they would effectively have this control over the entire country and it's just this small group having that <laughs> it's uh it's a it's an odd thing and it may pass too because this whole country is guilt-ridden by what they did to the indigenous. And so this is something that could come to America. I do think it won't be as big in Canada and Australia because, <clears throat> for one, the black experience outweighs all other minority experiences. And to elevate the Indians to the level of blacks, it would be a very offensive to blacks. So that's one that's one way to do this. I mean, people always cite this like stolen land, but it's really just a way to just demonize white America while placing blacks at the forefront. Blacks have to be the chief minority group there. So that's one reason. And two, there's so many other minority groups that have their own grievances is that allowing Indians to gain the primary um, position in that is just not going to be acceptable to any others. And they're also one of the smallest. I mean... There's far more Hispanics, far more blacks, far more Asians than there are Indians. And so Indians are really just there to critique America at its foundations and to attack white America for what it did. But at the same time, the central protagonist of American evil or who what that evil was directed against will still be blacks and Indians won't replace that. Well, with Canada having, you know, didn't really have slavery i mean they probably did like not to the extent of america did you know they didn't really have many blacks you know they don't have this they didn't have quite the immigration restrictions that we had in america and so the chief minority group with grievances are the indians and it's the same with australia too i mean the aboriginals have the chief minority are the chief minority grievance group even though a lot of people who claim to be aboriginals and in, in australia are in fact, very white. I mean, they show pictures of them. It's like, oh, I'm Aboriginal. And then it's like, uh, you have blonde hair, blue eyes. Like, I don't understand this. So that's why it's probably limited in how in it reaching the level of Australia and Canada, because there's so many other minority groups with their own grievances that are well ahead of the Indians. And they are just not going to become the primary force in minority grievance politics. But at the same time, there could be these things. Like we could, you know, Congress could issue a land acknowledgement. We could one day destroy Mount Rushmore and give it over to the Indians. That's the type of stuff. Reparations, uh, reparations will only happen if we give reparations to blacks. Because blacks are first in line. And blacks would be pissed if, we, if Indians got ahead of the line of them. And as I said, they're the central characters and that's in the minority grievance politics. And they are not going to let anyone cut in line in front of them. Just like in real life, they're not going to allow people to jump ahead a line of them. But all the, outside of all this, of the practical effects of it, I do think all these countries in the Anglosphere, and I think this is happening a little bit in New Zealand. I didn't really talk about New Zealand that much, but New Zealand is also doing that with the Maori tribes and is also doing similar matters with the Maori as Australia and Canada are with their own indigenous. There's a lot more Maori. Are the Maori have been a more powerful group, I think, over time. And also people who are actually Maori or claim to be Maori are unlike with the Aboriginals, where it's like I said, a blonde hair, blue eyed guy who was raised around whites. 
uh, is claiming Aboriginal status. But the entire Anglosphere, without the exception of the UK, I mean, if the UK found Indigenous there, they would be totally into this. And it's a way of just saying this Indian stuff and the land acknowledgements and this like deep sense of of shame over their own history is a way of mentally abolishing your country and saying that we should have no national pride over what we did to the Indians, what we did to the aboriginals what we did to the maori and with all that in mind this is something it's a it's a real poison that's gotten into the minds of the anglosphere and it's something that has to be combated and it must be challenged at any moment that it arises and so you're going to see in the american context you're going to see a lot more of the ben and jerry stuff it's not as absurd as you think now because there could come a time when congress or the president of the united states is issuing a similar statement and we're already seeing similar statements issued by the leaders of Australia, New Zealand, and Canada in regards to their own indigenous peoples. Now moving on to our final topic before the Con Lee questions, we have cocaine was found in the White House last week. This embarrassing moment was covered as high comedy by the rest of the media and was seen as no big deal. Which if this had happened in any time in American history, it had been a huge deal. Now, there were questions about it, but the media was like poo-pooing and they're like, oh, we don't know who could have brought cocaine in the White House. It's like, this is like the most surveilled and guarded and protected area in America, possibly the world. And you guys are saying you can't figure out who brought in the cocaine. And people are just like accepting this and they're like, oh, there's some grand conspiracy conservatives are about this. And it's most likely Hunter Biden's. I mean... Could be some other staffers, but pretty much the whole concern is like, it was just a little bit, it's no big deal, like just move on. And that was the argument made for the cocaine, which there's a couple different things going on. One, they're the media's radical, well not radical, radical is not the best word, but intense desire to defend Hunter Biden from all things that are coming. You know, Hunter Biden is still portrayed as like a little child and he's in his 50s. I remember when, you know, during the 2020 election, they're like, they are attacking a young child. And Hunter Biden was not yet 50 yet. And they're like, this is a man who's a father of several children and is like almost 50. And you're claiming he's like a young child. They're like, they're attacking a little kid. It's like he's permanently five years old. All of his dealings are just conspiracies or the work of Russia. And he's just allowed to do whatever he wants to do. And it's most likely he brought it in because I think if it was a staffer and with the type of embarrassment that's happening if it's just a low-level staffer they would have gone after that low-level staffer and it's like we found who it was it was a staffer we're ensuring that they're you know held responsible for this yada 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 but the fact that it's most likely Hunter is the fact that the White House is circling the wagon saying we can't figure out who this is oh it's um you know but it's a big mystery and it's no big deal and so it's most likely Hunter based on the reaction. It was just somebody else. If they knew it was somebody else, a low-level staffer, and they would punish him. Now, it could, be a, it could still be a low-level staffer, that they, but they think the cocaine belongs to Hunter. And so they're circling the wagons to protect Hunter. But it may, Hunter may be getting framed here, a bad rap, but we'll have to see. The other matter is how much cocaine and really drug use in America has been normalized. Like this would have been a, if this had been the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like this would have been 
huge deal. Like this would have been very bad. It's like, what message is the White House sending by their members doing a hard drug? But now cocaine is like a joke. I mean, you know, one of the biggest movies movies this year was Cocaine Bear. It's, you know, it's like not, to, I'm not criticizing saying they can't make movies like this, but it does indicate America's re- relationship to drugs and saying like, oh, cocaine is now fun. Like, let's do cocaine. Oh, these other drugs are fun and awesome. And like, you know, if you walk around in any urban environment now, you'll most likely smell weed at some point. And, you know, drug use is really rampant in America, but it's encouraged and celebrated. And it's done more so with cocaine, which the one thing I always find funny when they talk about war on drugs and the war on drugs um, memes that they have is that saying that this is all due to the responsibility to Americans. Like Americans are buying this drug and they're fueling the violence in Mexico and Latin America and they're to blame for this. So the real problem is not supply, it's demand. There's the demand for it, and we have to focus on solving the demand issue. At the same time that people will say this, encourage the demand use because there's so much celebration in drug use in the media, and there's nobody does this like the harmful effects of cocaine. Everyone celebrates cocaine usage, especially in the media. The media and a lot of these journalists all want to celebrate like, oh, I do coke, by the way. Guess what? I do coke. A lot of these people in the tech world, tech titans do drugs. Maybe not cocaine. They do a lot of ketamine and other things. And same, like a lot of our elites are doing tons of drugs. And they love these drugs. And But at the same time, they're like, oh, I watched a Joe Rogan thing on dro- drug war. And it's so bad. And we, it's all America's fault for buying this stuff as they're doing another line. You know, it's stupid. And you know, drug use has been normalized. I'm very anti-drug use. I don't even like this stuff like celebrating cocaine usage. Like cocaine is like bad and you are causing death and destruction in Latin America by doing this. I mean, maybe experimenting with it once or whatever in college, like, yeah, but once you become a heavy drug user, you know, it's bad. It is bad. You know, I watched a, I watched a behind the music on Megadeth over the weekend on YouTube, and it was just like hearing the life story of Dave Mustaine and the rest of the band and their horrible drug use and how, like, they spent tons of money. Like, one of the bass player, uh, David Ellison, who's now out of the band, but he's been the only other member who's been in the band for lengthy periods of time you know he's talking about how like they had had four successful albums you know they sold at arena tours and stuff and then he's like saying like i had no i had no money to my name i had over a hundred thousand dollars in debt and it was all due to drug use and it's also just the damage you do to your body you know and like dave mustaine had to go to drug rehab 15 times nearly killed himself with drugs not just quite you, you know Cocaine seemed to be the least of their problems, but it's a lot of money. It's very expensive. I mean, the biggest problem for them was heroin. Um, They had all these issues, and it's just like drug use is just very bad. I've become more, over time, you know, nobody wants to be a prude or a puritan on this, but over time, I was like, man, Dare was right. All these anti-drug campaigns are right. It's like, you really shouldn't do drugs. I don't like talking about, I don't like the right being like, this is normal, this is cool. And with the right, there is this mentality that drugs are awesome, alcohol is bad. And like, there's problems with alcohol. I don't like the, you know, like supporting alcoholism or whatever, but alcohol is much better than drugs um, for finances. I mean, it may, you know, and most people just like can't stop abusing drugs. And I think with uh, high potency of weed now that weed is a far worse drug than 
than alcohol. And alcohol is like helps people socialize. It's it's like our social uh, beverage that makes things fun and make, relaxes people. It's it's good in moderation. And a lot of people know how to do it in moderation. I don't think people don't know how to do uh, cocaine and heroin in moderation, or even it appears to be weed anymore. Uh, and so, and it turns people into slugs or just maniacs. So, in conclusion of this story, it really does illustrate how drug use has been normalized, particularly cocaine. Americans no longer care about it. It really shows how stupid these arguments are. It's like if you want to solve the war on drugs or the drug problem, we got to solve the demand issue. And all these people say this is like encouraging drug use, which is hypocritical. And at the same time, you know, I've become more anti-drug, like all drugs, like no, you, no weed, no cocaine. Uh, everyone hates heroin, so that's not a controversial subject. But, you know, none of the, you know, no ketamine, none of that, no ecstasy, you know, no drug policy. You can, it's fine to drink. I'm not that big into tobacco, but, you know, uh, it's more that it's just the people who just act like, oh, this is the healthiest thing in the world to smoke a pack of cigarettes is like um i know some lung cancer survivors who may disagree with that but you know i'm not that hostile to smoking those are like normal habits that as a society as western society have built around and have been able to maintain but drugs adds a, a wild element and like with the greater legalization of weed it just turns people into slugs who are just smoking weed all the time and unlike, you know, somebody drinking, you know, having a glass of wine after dinner or something sort, you know, if you're smoking weed, like even in your apartment or, you know, maybe if you're in your house, no one would notice. But if you're most people smoke it outside and it's like and like it smells up the whole area. So it's like it creates a quality of life problem for everyone. So in conclusion, we're very anti-drugs and. This story illustrates how the media and the elites are normalizing drug use and celebrating drug use and are not no longer bothered by cocaine. So that is it for the normal topics. Now on to the cognitive elite questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the cognitive elite option at highly respected Substack. And that's at highly respected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. And the first question comes from Dave, and it's a big one. It's asked, Scott, what are your thoughts on the new movie Sound of Freedom? Sound of Freedom has taken over the discourse in a lot of ways because it's it's a conservative-produced movie. It's about a, um, I don't know if the guy's still a Department of Homeland Security agent in, this, in the movie, but it's about a Homeland Security agent who goes to rescue kids being uh, Latin American kids who are getting sex trafficked, and he goes in the jungle to rescue them. I haven't seen the movie, but um, I can understand the plot. And it's based on a, a true story with a lot of exaggeration. You know, there wasn't quite the guerrilla operation to rescue this child in, in the jungle. But, you know, movies take license. So you make it a more interesting movie. It'd not be a very entertaining movie if it wasn't more action involved. And this is it. And it's making a lot of money. I was seeing a new story that it would have made over $40 million in its first week. And that's a very successful number. I mean, there's some um, blockbusters that bomb that wish they could have had a 40 million in one week. And this is a low budget movie, you know, done entirely through word of mouth. You know, it's not getting the support of major Hollywood and it's having a big success. I mean, it has Jim Caviezel in it, who most famously played Jesus Christ in The Passion of the Christ. Um, his career, his career took a nosedive due to that. Uh, it was but he still did it anyway. He's become very conservative. Uh, he's a devout Christian. Uh, people attack him for being for attending QAnon conferences, but there that is what it is. 
So I can't get really give my reaction to the movie and its quality because I haven't seen it, but I can give my reaction to the surrounding hoopla around it and what it means and some of the discourse going on around the movie. So the media has condemned it as a QAnon movie. They're like, don't see this, it's all bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And that's really feeding into conservatives. What they want to believe about the movie is like, ah, the liberal media defends pedophilia. They don't want you to know about the pedophile networks. And, you know, it's a mutually beneficial arrangement and how it's being covered is that the conservatives desperately want that negative attention. Because if the movie was like saying, oh, you know, it, it's showing a real problem in Latin America, of like how these kids are poorly treated and trafficked and used in brothels and stuff that would have made and used in child pornography. That would have been a, you know, it wouldn't have been as good for the film's notoriety. And it's making it more controversial. It's like these major outlets, you know, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, the and other big outlets are condemning it and saying like this movie is bad. It's QAnon. That feeds into what conservatives want to believe is that saying, hey, the left is wanting to normalize pedophilia. They're wanting to defend it, and that we're going to go see this movie to show how we're standing up against the pedophile networks. The human trafficking element is, you know, left are into this as well as human trafficking. Everyone's supposed to agree that human trafficking is bad, because, but it's become much more important on the right because it's connected. It's a more normalized way of QAnon thinking. And as I've talked about in, the, in other podcasts and other writings is that the counter to the left systemic racism is the right's systemic pedophilia, that everything is built around pedophilia and that like every, you know, all these teachers are groomer or pedophiles. Groomers is a little bit different from pedophile, but, you know, they use the term groomer as a way. It's a little bit, it's a bigger tent and it's maybe a little bit more accurate in what they're doing, but it, they really want to mean pedophile and that the politicians are pedophiles. And this whole system is built on structural pedophilia while the left talks about structural racism. And it's a popular narrative to counter because the only thing more controversial or more hated in our society than racism is pedophilia. You know, a lot of the right wants to talk about how pedophilia is being normalized or like there's a move away from it being a taboo outside of a few like crazy academics or people on Tumblr. I don't think Tumblr is still around, but like people like that who will just like, well, like blah, 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 something about pedophilia. That's it's not going mainstream at all. There's like very few main like popular figures that are wanting to normalize pedophilia because it's like it is very it's the one remaining taboo we have. And there's so much focus on it because it's the it's because it's the one remaining taboo. It's the one thing you're allowed to indulge in this very performative hatred or I don't want to say hate performative because I think people are people are generally horrified and outraged by this for a good reason. It's the one thing you're allowed to vent your hatred on is pedophiles. It's why like on Reddit, you know, no matter like even liberals get into the wood chipper meme. And other things like and everyone wants to believe that their opponents are filled with pedophiles because this is the one group you're allowed to hate in our society and to want to you know throw in a wood chipper. You can't do that with other groups. And everyone's allowed to have disgust towards this one habit, which you're not allowed to have disgust towards transvestites or to you know gays and other groups. You're not allowed to have that disgust for them anymore. But you're still able to have disgust for pedophiles. So that's where all this energy is shifted towards. 
And it helps the right, or I think people on the right thinks it helps them because it gives them a moral cause and something to see their opponents as evil, saying that these people encourage and enable pedophilia. That adds a you know moral weight to their arguments. Like you know they feel they can say you know there's still this disgust and this taboo felt in our society, and a good way that they feel to demonize the opponents is to say they enable pedophilia. And so this movie doesn't really indulge or engage in it, even though it makes some points of that you know these kids are getting trafficked in america it's mostly about you know uh, even though there's some exaggeration hyperbole it's based on a largely true story and what happens in latin america about how these kids are abducted and put into either you know labor or you know they're you know used as kind of slave labor or they're put into brothels and uh, of sorts and so that generally happens in latin america and it really just shows how like messed up these countries are and I don't think there's any issue with that. I mean, it's a legitimate story. It's there. And there is, you know, it's significant. And this is happening throughout the world. And I do have, but there is like one issue here. And I, once again, I want to have to say, it's like you're never going to convince like the right to not believe the systemic pedophilia angle. It's like it's a matter of faith for people. And, you know, as long as it doesn't, you know, encourage you to support mass immigration and other stupid stuff, like, you know, you can believe in it. So I, I do think that some of the times like people, you know, their belief like the left is going to legalize this and stuff. I'm like, I want to be like, uh, you know, good news. They're not white pill. They're not. I don't think we're going to have this legalized pedophilia anytime soon. I think there's there. You could even argue there's more hostility towards it, if that's even possible today than there was 20 years ago, which very hostile even then. But now it's like because. Once again, there's not allowed, you know, homophobia, transphobia, whatever, or forbidden activities or forbidden thoughts that now that's all directed towards pedophiles. I just want to say that they're not, you know, it's not going to be legalized. Let's take this white pill. Let's take this thing. I think you guys, it's not going to be normalized. Uh, some people don't want to take that uh, white pill. but It is what it is. I think, though, one concerning fact, I don't think the movie is like harmful at all even though the main guy it's based on tim ballard i do you know have my suspicions about him uh the other people made in the movie you know caviezel mel gibson of course are great people and i think people should go see it because they should support something that's made by people who think like us and that could encourage people to make movies all their good movies that are have right-wing themes and right-wing uh views that maybe are not you know, just about human trafficking, maybe a good movie about the European settlement of America or the American Revolution. A lot of these movies aren't quite very good quality yet, but I think the development of them and showing how they can be a success can eventually draw the necessary talent to make a really great movie about, you know, American history or something that, or a type of movie that Hollywood would never make due to the content or the message of it. So I support that in that regard, but the Tim Ballard character is, uh, some of the other people are suspicious because I don't, his whole goal is to get this, get people into the Mormon church, and that's like his stated goal. I mean, he may say it's like a broad uh, Christian message, but it's specifically the Mormon church, and the Mormons are very into open borders at the moment, is that they're very much in, on the side of allowing as many immigrants as possible in this country, and I do worry that this obsession with human trafficking on the right could lead to the right wanting more liberal immigration policies because a lot of the stuff and i was already seeing this with there was these news stories coming out about how these 
uh, miners are being brought into America, illegal miners, and basically forced into indentured servitude. And conservatives were outraged about this and like, these conditions are all the fault of the Biden administration. Why aren't they keeping track of these kids? And it's like, you know, it's a legitimate outrage. But at the same time, you were worried that they were thinking that we need more generous immigration policies and more generous uh, uh, disposition towards these migrants. And I would think that may set off the wrong tone. And I do worry that because a lot of most human trafficking in the world is just another term for immigration, just another term for immigration. And that's how I really have to have to think. It's like, you know, there are cases of, you know, these kids kidnapped in not America or Southeast Asia and put in a brothel. Yes, there's obviously examples of that. I don't. But if they start believing that the idea that they're bringing in all these kids from the third world for the pedophile networks or what have you, they're like, we need to rescue these kids. Or the fact that they think that in Latin America, all these kids are getting preyed upon by pedophiles. They're like, we need to bring these kids to America to protect them. And I do worry that if there could be a very clever liberal campaign to be like, hmm, I think we know how to sell mass immigration to the right. Say it's a way to stop the pedophiles in, in the third world from getting to these kids. And it, that so far hasn't happened. But I do worry that that could happen because, and I do wonder about this Ballard character that he may advocate for that as a way to protect these kids. Is like, we need to open the borders because this is the only place we can trust the kids. Even though he talks about how they're, you know, sex trafficking kids into America, which that's... Um, not as well-founded as others. I mean, there is clearly these um, off-the-books par uh, massage parlors, but most of those are like adult females like from Asia, not quite like nine-year-olds in there. So there is some truth there, but it's maybe not quite the picture we, we have in our mind. But the thing you need to remember is that human trafficking is just another term for immigration. And if their conservatives become very concerned with like, we need to solve this problem of human trafficking, it can be manipulated into making them support more generous and liberal policies for immigration. It also opens up the opportunity for like really insane grifters. There was a story of earlier this year, there's this crazed woman named or this woman, Eliza Blue, who claimed that she was human trafficked and there was like stories about it and it sounded like she was just in some, you know, normal like relationships and they didn't, they went south and then she tried to claim that this was a form of human trafficking. And I know another story of a, of an e-girl who flew to, to Europe to have sex with an influencer with this stated in mind and then the influencer ghosted her or just didn't want to date her. And, you know, she had a meltdown. And then years later, she claimed she was human trafficked by this influencer. And I could see this a lot of times with women. It's like, uh, you even see these stories like, oh, you know, me and my boyfriend went down to Miami and we had sex. And then he he broke up with me. I was human trafficked. <laughs> it's like a lot of liberal women are into this. It's like, oh, that's definitely human trafficking. There's a lot of like the concerns over human trafficking and pedophilia are now built around uh middle class white women concerns is like pedophilia is now like a 40 year old man dating a 28 year old or just even a 30 year old dating a 22 year old is like pedophilia human trafficking is their boyfriend like taking them to traveling with them and having sex with them and then breaking it when they get back home that's so it's like this it all becomes like their narrow concerns of their relationship um woes like are built around this stuff 
Uh, but that's 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 an aside. That's more of a funny thing. The worst problem that could happen is that I think it could encourage conservatives to engage in liberal immigration policies. That's why I'm like a you know a little skeptical. I don't. I, I think people should see the movie. I think most people who see the movie are not going to get that impression. Aren't going to stay away from that impression. But I do have that concern that if human trafficking becomes the number one issue for conservatives or one of the top issues, is that could push aside the identity issues and even make them terrible on the identity issues because they're like, oh, we need to protect these kids. So we need to bring them to America and or we need to intervene in Latin America and these places or wherever there's kids there. We need a neoconservative foreign policy in order to protect these kids. So it could really shore up support for the standard globalist agenda. But now it's done on the sake of combating systemic pedophilia. Which I, I do work, I do have this concern, but those are my thoughts on it. I think it's I think it is very good that it's becoming a successful film, and I do think that this does show that conservatives are becoming um, a consumer group, a uni- an almost unified consumer consumer group. Because once again, you can see this with Bud Light is that they will organize to boycott one product. and they can be won over to support another product in in sound of freedom and so this may this could could happen with some changes with other companies and how they market their products and that they now see conservatives as a uh, almost as a consumer group uh, as maybe not quite as organized as gays and other you know minority groups but as one that they have to take you know notice of and actually build around in order to to appease and placate. They are rel- they are a group that are probably easier to placate and appease than gays. You know, they don't need a conservative pride month and they can be easily won over just with like, you know, a patriotic display. I mean, just look at the NFL, for example. But some film studios may say, hey, this movie made a lot of money. Let's see if we can replicate that and make a film, you know, tailored to conservatives. And the same way they make films tailored for black audiences or women and that and they've tried to do one for gay audiences but they bomb so i don't know if they're going to try to do that anymore our asian audiences that they're now trying to do it and they may try to do that with conservative audiences and that would be i think that would be a very positive development and allow for some movies with better messages i just some of these movies are low quality and are very corny but i think over time there can be a really great movie coming from this new cultural apparatus that's being developed now on to the other questions. These are probably going to be short questions or short answers because they're pretty simple. The first question comes from New England Refugee. And, you know, he's asking, happy 4th, because this came around July 4th. And as a former New Englander, New Englander, we always watch the movie Jaws. I watched it today, realized along with being a movie masterpiece, it's diversity-free. That's true. What are your thoughts on the movie Jaws? I, you know, as a kid, I was terrified of Jaws. I really did not like sharks as a really little kid. This is like when I was like, seven or eight and the movie was on all the time and i always like worried there would be like a shark in the water or some sort uh over time i'm not that afraid of it i was watching jaws on on the tv when i was at the gym like a a week or so ago a week or two two weeks ago and i was watching i was like man i really want to watch jaws i I was watching both of it and it's a very good movie i i really enjoy it it's um 
you know, was not uh, good for the shark population. <laughs> made everyone terrified of sharks, but it's a very well-made movie. It is true. This is one of the great things about watching all the old movies is that you don't have to worry about wokeness. It's all white. It's all, you know, nice cast. There's uh, standard themes. You know, there's no type of PC uh, messaging, even though it's made by Steven Spielberg, who, of course, is a liberal and other things. <laughs> but... You know, it's a good movie. I enjoy it. I like it a lot more than some of his other movies. Like, I'm not a big Indiana Jones fan. I never really got into it. I watched Temple of Dune a lot as a kid. It was okay. It was not. I watched the, uh, I've seen the other ones, but it's never been like movies I've been really into. But Jaws is a movie that I really like. Um, and you know, it's one of those movies that has a powerful impact. A lot of those movies that terrify me as a kid, like now, I think are awesome movies like Halloween, Exorcist. And it's not as scary as those movies because I, I think uh, I'm not as terrified as like a sharks anymore <laughs> as I would be. Even though if I was in water and a shark was by me, I may have a different attitude. But no, it's a great movie. It's uh, it's definitely a summer classic. Um, that's funny that New Englanders watch it because it makes them afraid to go into the water in summer. But, you know, it's a very good New England movie. So, uh, yeah, what, what more can you say about it? Very pro Jaws as a movie. And the final question comes from Tom. Tom asks, it's one th happy Independence Day. He's getting all these on Independence Day. Question, if we lived in a normal world where the civil rights movement never happened and Lothrop Stoddard and Madison Grant were required readings for sixth graders across America, what would you be doing? Uh, I would hopefully either be a historian or a lawyer. I mean, I was actually supposed to, being a lawyer was actually my plan uh, coming out of college. But, you know, things change and I decided to become a thinkfluencer instead. But I'd probably be that, doing something normal, um, something involved with reading and writing. I mean, that's really what I enjoy. That's what I'm good at. Uh, maybe I would be a plumber. <laughs> I don't think so. I think uh, to my strong suit, it'd be either historian or lawyer. I really wanted to be a historian, you know, uh, you know, a history professor when I was in college. This is, I then changed it to law and then uh, after, <laughs> in normal life, I became a thinkfluencer. But, uh, you know, the history profession, I don't know what colleges would look like in, in that world. And I realized at that time that it's like a terrible career path. And it's even a worse career path now than even when I was in college. And then it was already abysmal. But now if you're like a white guy, even if you're a liberal, there's no way you can get a history job. You have to, unless you're doing, even if you're doing like civil rights or African-American history, like the only way you can get that job is if you're non-white, particularly black. Um, so, but I think in that world, you wouldn't have to worry about it. So one um, historian, but you know, if there was still a bad job market for that lawyer. So I guess that's not that exciting. Uh, maybe I could be, you know, maybe if we had a better America, maybe I'd be serving the regime in some, in some capacity. So who knows? But if I was not serving the government, um, you know, like as a military officer or, um, some other way of serving it, like a diplomatic service, you know, I'd probably be a lawyer or a historian. But it'd be different. It'd be a different scenario. I think there's a, you know, people don't want to, uh, people with our political views. And I already had our political views by the time of college that I really didn't have an interest in serving the government because I knew that my views were not in line with some of what the uh, government was promoting. But if the government and the society were promoting what I believed in, then I'd probably have more interest in doing that public service. So, but that's a, that's a way to answer it. Maybe not the most exciting answer, but that's what I'm sticking to. So that is it for today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. We're going to have a great article later this week on the Substack 
and a fantastic IQ supplement later this week. So tune in for those things. So until next time, stay respected.